Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, let's turn to the book of Joshua. And it is my plan this morning, Lord willing, to go through chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. Obviously, as you know, so let me explain here that the main purpose of this particular hour is not to do any kind of in-depth look at any of these things that we normally come to in this part of the service. Uh, It's more of an overview and uh, almost a running commentary upon some of these passages. We save the deeper stuff, so to speak, for the next hour when we're actually preaching through, uh, for instance, the book of James. But for now, we're just simply going over this to be a help, a reminder, and also encourage you to read your Bibles at home. I trust that I don't have to do that very much to you. You should already know that reading the Scriptures is certain that something that we ought to be doing as Christians, and uh, whether young or old, uh, we'll never run out of... Uh, places to go to in the scriptures as far as reading them is concerned. This morning I'd like for us to look at, first of all, verses 1 through uh, through 6 and uh, pick up with the narrative. And it says, And Joshua rose early in the morning, and they removed from Shittim and came to Jordan, he and all the children of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. And it came to pass after three days that the officers went through the host, and they commanded the people, saying, When ye see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God, and the priests, the Levites, bearing it, then ye shall remove from your place and go after it. Yet there shall be a space between you and it, about two thousand cubits by measure. Come not near unto it, that you may know the way by which ye must go. For ye have not passed this way heretofore. And Joshua said unto the people, Sanctify yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua spake unto the priests, saying, Take up the ark of the covenant and pass over before the people. And they took up the ark of the covenant and went before the people. The context of this finds us, of course, is right after the spies had went into the land, there were two individuals that... uh, Joshua has sent over to not only spy out a portion of the land, but in particular to spy out Jericho, because that's going to be the first city that is going to be attacked by the people of God as they go in and begin to claim the land that has been their promise for the last few hundred years. And this is the day and the time in which all this is about ready to take place. And so they're dwelling, you remember, on the other side of the Jordan. Uh, They would be on the east side. And uh, they're not in the land of Canaan for actually for the last 40 years because of the sin of their fathers. They have been in the wilderness. But now, though, they are ready to embark to go across over and, as I said, to claim the land that has been theirs for the last few hundred years. Now, Joshua, we see here in verse 1, rises up early and he moves the host of the folks even closer to the banks of the Jordan River where, of course, they will cross. Now, whether they were at exactly on the map uh, can't be tell. Uh, At least I can't figure it out looking at the maps that I have. So, nonetheless, however far it was from the point that they were dwelling at until this very place they come up to the river, this is what Joshua does now. Obviously, the reason is because they're getting ready to cross and go over. So, they need to gather, as it were, at a point so that they can go across. Shittim, we do know this, is obviously on the east side of the Jordan River, and it is in the land of Moab. And, of course, that's also partial of the land that uh, the children of Israel claimed as well because of the Lord giving that side of them also. But it says there, And Joshua rose up early in the morning, and they removed from Shittim, and came to Jordan, that is, to the river, and all the children of Israel, that is, he and all the children of Israel, lodged there before they passed over. So, again, they camped there, uh, making ready uh, to go over. Then we see in verse 2, 
and actually down through verse 4, that uh, by the river they stay here some three days. Now, whether this is all part of the three days that had mentioned previously or this is other, another three days, it's neither here nor there for our argument about that. But the point of the matter is, all total, we do see them here about ready to cross over and in three days they will be doing so. And so the leaders here are told to go through the camp and to make commands to the people to follow. And we see those in verses 3 and 4. And they commanded the people, saying, When you see the ark of the covenant of your God and the priests, the Levites, bearing it, then you shall remove from your place and go after it. Yet there shall be a space between you and it, about 2,000 cubits by measure. Come not near unto it, that you may know the way by which you must go, for ye have not passed this way heretofore. And so the Joshua commands the leaders that they're to go through the, uh, the, uh, through the camp and they are to give these specific commands to the children of Israel. They were only to move when they see the ark itself being taken up before them. You notice in verse 4, he gives them a space that they're to be between the ark and themselves. The only, now, some said it's because of reverence, that is, there's this holy awe about it. Well, that might be true, but it is also true for the very fact that uh, for everyone to see this thing, because uh, there's probably about a million or so folks on the other side of the river watching this, I mean, the people of Israel, then it has to be able to be seen. And so there's probably enough distance there, not necessarily for awe and reverence, but most likely so that everyone can see it. Everybody has read into that as far as the commentaries are concerned. But just to put it in a plain sense, you're not going to be able to see the thing that is everyone if they're, if they're right up upon it. And so they're to, when they see the ark of God or the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God, as it's called here, then that's when they are to move. Now, the Ark of God, if you remember, was a large chest that was uh, really the centerpiece of the worship of God in the tabernacle. It was there that God literally uh, made his presence known, in particular, to the high priest. And so it's there that God was worshipped through the means of the high priest at that time. In fact, it will carry over all the way into the temple worship, even of the days of David, or at least of Solomon, and on down until the Lord Jesus comes, and of course all of that being done away with. Uh, as far as it was a picture, it was a picture of the law of God. It was a picture of Christ being the one who was going to make the great sacrifice. He was the one who was going to bring reconciliation between uh, his people and God, and all those things that we know in the New Testament speaks of in regards to the sacrifice and the provisions that have been made by Christ for his people and the forgiveness of sins. Now, the reason, and as we mentioned in our prayer this morning, the very fact that we're able to draw nigh unto God even in prayer is because of this great work that Christ has done for us. He has allowed us now to come boldly, as the scripture says, with confidence to the throne of grace that we might find help in the time of need. Well, that was all of which this ark signified. And so when they see this thing begin to move, then the people are alerted that this is the time for us to go as well. Now, you remember the previous sign for the people of Israel to move was what? Well, if you go back to the book of Numbers and some of their relationships to that, we see that it was the cloud, the glory of God as it was... He was ready to move. There was this big cloud that would go before the nation of Israel and thus they would move. But now, it's the ark. And so the people here are now instructed, don't move until you see the ark ready to move itself. So the people then are instructed in this. And then verse, verse 4 says, Yet there shall be a space between you and it, 
about 2,000 cubits by measure. Come not near unto it. And here's the reason why, I think. That you may know the way by which ye must go. For ye have not passed this way heretofore. So, whatever the reasons others have read into this particular passage as to why they had to spend 2,000 cubits away from the thing, the text plainly says it's because you'll know now which way to go. The fact of the matter is, he says here, you've never been this way before. They've never crossed the Jordan. And, and uh, so now they're about ready to do so. Well, beginning in verse 5 and 6 now, we see Moses, or Joshua, Moses is dead, excuse me. Joshua now gives a command. And Joshua spake unto the priest, saying, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass over before the people. And they took up the Ark of the Covenant. Oh, I read verse five, 6, didn't I? Let me read verse 5. And Joshua said unto the people, Sanctify yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua spake unto the priest, saying, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass over before the people. And they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. Now, notice the command that he gives them here. And again, whether this is part of the previous day it's viewed here, it doesn't really matter. The point of the matter is that they are getting ready to move. And notice the first command that he gives to the people there is in verse 5. Sanctify themselves. In other words, they are to set apart themselves in preparation to go over. Now, you may ask, just what is it here meaning when he says sanctify themselves? Well, guess what? We don't know because the text doesn't tell us. But in some way, in some fashion, they knew that they were to set apart themselves in preparation to go over. Whether it meant in a ceremonial way, whether it meant in a moral way, we don't know because the text isn't any plainer than what it already says here in verse 5. Sanctify yourselves. But the point of the matter is they were to be obedient in this. Whatever the command meant... The people of Israel obviously understood, and we'll see later that obviously they did obey in this point. The second thing is, he nuts some know here, is that the Lord will perform miracles before them. Notice again in verse 5. For tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Here's the reason, folks, why you're to separate yourselves. is because tomorrow God is going to work miracles in your sight. And so he obviously does. And then thirdly, in verse 6, we see that he speaks to the priests. And Joshua spake unto the priests, saying, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass over before the people. And they took the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. So we see here that he speaks to the priests. Their particular duties at this point is to be obedient in this matter. What matter? They are to take up the Ark and they are to pass over. That is, they are to go over to the land of Canaan. And then in verses 7 and 8, we see that the Lord encourages Joshua here. Now, you remember, Joshua is getting ready to take these folks over, something that he and they have never done before. Joshua is fresh here into the leadership. And so, God comes in a very gracious way, I think, and he encourages uh, Joshua at this point. This is going to be a big job for Joshua. And what does the Lord do? Well, we see in verse 7 and 8 that he gives him first some encouragement and then... That encouragement is not just to pump him up, but it's to be for command. Notice. And the Lord said unto Joshua, This day will I begin to magnify thee in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so will, so I will be with thee. So first we see that he encourages him. And he encourages him with the promise. 
And of course, we've seen those promises before in previous lessons in regards to this. We saw back in Exodus. We also saw in Numbers and uh, how that God uh, revealed to Moses, as also He has revealed to Joshua, that He was to be the one who was to take Moses' place. And just as Moses was the the spokesman for God at that time, he was the lawgiver, and people were to submit and to obey what Moses said. Now Joshua is taking Moses' place. And so Moses now, or excuse me, Joshua now becomes, as it were, the lawgiver, and he is the one that the folks are to obey and that they are to respect. And so God here encourages Joshua, that's exactly what's going to take place. I'm going to so magnify you before the people that they will see you as I was with Moses, I will be with you. So it's not just for Joshua's sake here, but also in verse 8. And thou shalt command the priests that bear the ark of the covenant, saying, When ye are come to the brink of the Jordan, ye shall stand still in Jordan. So not just the... Uh, put it in quotations here, the common folks who are to obey Moses, but even the priesthood. We see that the, the Levites here are to in, uh, obey what Joshua commands. So we see that the whole people of Israel then are to be followers of Joshua. And so, as we look back, stand back here a moment, we see here that what obviously God is doing here is in a public manner making it very plain that Joshua is to be the leader. It's no longer Moses, but it will be Joshua. And he's going to confirm this, how? By notice in verse 7, that they, uh, by, magnify him, by magnifying him in the sight of all Israel. How will he do that? Well, we'll see here in a few moments. It will be through uh, him parting or God parting uh, the Jordan River. And then, of course, we said, as we already said, the command then to uh, the priest there in verse 8. And then verses 9 and 10, we see that Joshua commands the people to hear and to heed God's word. Now, he's been encouraged by God, and so now he's getting ready here to stand before the people. And what does he tell them? And Joshua said unto the children of Israel, Come hither and hear the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, Hereby ye shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Hivites and the Perizzites and the Gergesites and the Amorites and the Jebusites. So, notice what Joshua does. Joshua does the very same thing that God had did to him just a moment ago. Remember, God encouraged Joshua. Well, now in turn, Joshua here encourages the people. And how does Joshua encourage the folks to be obedient? By reminding them of the promises of God. And so he speaks of them to them in regards to the covenants that he's made with them, with the promises that he's made with them. And hence we learn here, one of the ways in which we motivate the people of God, brethren, and one another is to be reminded then of the promises of God. Sure, the threatenings work as well, but also there is the just the good old promises that are there that we ought to heed from the Word of God. There's some preaching hints there, brethren, for you, uh, for those of you making preparations for your lessons and for your sermons. Uh, motivate the brethren, uh, stir them up by giving them, yes, surely, the threatens, uh, threatenings of God, but also the gracious promises 
that he's given us. Well, he's already told them in the past that he was going to wipe out these nations for them. And Joshua here, in order to encourage them, tells them that that's exactly what God is going to do. He's going to hold to his promises. And remember, there's a thing that God cannot do. What is it? You children ought to know this. God cannot lie, can he? He is a God of truth. And so there are two immutable things it says in regards to one is that he cannot lie. God is a God who cannot and who will not lie to his people. So he's going to keep his promises. And so Joshua then encourages the people in that. And then notice verse 11 through 13. He says, Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth passeth over before you into Jordan. Now therefore take you twelve men out of the tribes of Israel, out of, out of every tribe a man. And it shall come to pass, as soon as the soles of the feet of the priests that bear the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of Jordan, that the waters of Jordan shall be cut off from the waters that come down from above, and they shall stand upon a heap. So we see here now he further instructs them. After giving them the promises, he too now gives them the command. He tells them when you see the ark, first of all, you're to take note of the ark of God, and you're to pick out what? Twelve men, and then they too will stand in the water. And when that takes place, what's going to happen? Well, the waters will divide. It says here in verse 13 that it comes to pass, as soon as the soles of the feet of the priests that bear the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of Jordan, that the waters of Jordan shall be cut off from the waters that come down from above, and they shall stand upon and heap. Now, children, when he says come down from above, he doesn't mean there are waters flowing from the sky, but it means from the top of the river. That as the river is flowing down, he's going, God is going to miraculously stop it. And then the rest of the, water, uh, the land there will be dry. But there's going to be a heap of water, a lot of water, where this, like a dam is going to be. And that will stop all the water. And so the people of God then hear this very thing. And of course, they're obedient to that. And notice verse 14 through 17. This is the closing and then we'll get into the applications to this. We see the mighty wonders then of the Lord. So we'll read this big chunk here, verses 14 through 17. And it came to pass, when the people removed from their tents to pass over Jordan, and the priests bearing the ark of the covenant before the people, and as they that bear the ark were come unto Jordan, and the feet of the priests that bear the ark were dipped into the brim of the water, for Jordan overfloweth all his banks all the time of harvest, that the waters which came down from above stood and rose up upon and heap very far from the city Adam, that is, beside Zaratan, and those that came down toward the sea of the plain, even the salt sea, failed and were cut off, and the people passed over right against Jericho. And the priests that bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the midst of Jordan, and all the Israelites passed over on dry ground until all the people were passed clean over Jordan. Well, now we see the mighty work of God performed. Remember, God, uh, Moses, or excuse me, Joshua promised this. He said that just a few verses before what was going to take place when the priests actually stepped their, uh, put their feet into the water, into the river. The river stopped flowing. And so it was dammed up at that point. All the water stayed at that point. In fact, it began to flood behind it. But the water in front of it uh, stopped. And thus the land, notice this, here's the second miracle, the land was dried up. 
Now, children, would that be the normal way if you were out playing in the mud and you had your little stream going and you stopped it with the mud immediately dry up? You said, no, it would take a while for the sun to bake it and then it would finally get dry and then you could play in it or that's not what you want to do, something else. But here we see that a whole river was stopped and it was dried up. And so that the people of God then were able to go across. This reminds us of what? Well, something that took place 40 years earlier, didn't it? That is, when they crossed the Red Sea. Here again, this is part of God doing two things. One, being very gracious to the children of Israel. And two, remember what he told Joshua? This is the day that I'm going to begin to magnify you before the people. So two things were accomplished in this. One, the people of God got over the river. And secondly, it accomplished the fact that Joshua was the one who was shown to be the leader at this time. Well, oh, you may ask, well, how, 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 what was the distance between all of that? Uh, they don't really know, at least scholars don't, because no one knows where the city of Adam is. They know where Jericho is, but they don't know where Adam is at. And thus, if you knew that, then you could probably measure it. Some have determined it was a possibly of 12 miles of dry land between there. So, be that as it may, I don't know because, again, we're not privy to all that information. Well, in seeing these 17 verses, what do we learn from that? Well, you say, well, all was very nice. We see a miracle here. It's all historical fact. We believe all of this. But what does this mean for us? Well, first of all, as God said He would and does fulfill His promises, so we can believe that. And brethren, here is where our faith is, I think, greatly exercised and it is increased. And that is when we look to the promises of Scripture. And it sounds easy, doesn't it? But when you begin to do so, then you find out just how hard it is to see that. Everybody says, well, faith is easy. Well, let me tell you, then do it. It's like the sinners who think that they can believe without being born again. If you can believe without being born again, then do it. And you'll find yourself at a very hard place, won't you? Well, it's, while we do have the new birth, Christian, and we do have that thing dwelling within us that does cause us to believe, yet it is difficult to believe the promises of God. That goes to show you how much of the fall is still left in us. How much that we still struggle with indwelling sin when we find the promise, the gracious promises of God hard sometimes to believe and to put into practice. But here again, does God let us down? Did He let the people of God down at this time? The answer, of course, is no. Well, again, our faith. And again, this is kind of the stuff that moves us into Hebrews chapter 11, doesn't it? By faith, they did these things. So, let me encourage all of us who perhaps have something before us, whether it's a trial or some encouragement needed. Again, brethren, we need to look to the promises of God by faith and faith alone. Secondly, while God works, yet we must still obey. You know, God could have just spoke and He could have literally moved all of those hundreds of thousands of folks across the river. But He didn't, did He? He did it in a particular way. The people of God still had to pick up their feet and move one foot after another to get across that river. 
So they just didn't say, oh, well, we're going to let God, or we're going to let go and let God here, did they? Actually, they get very busy. They see the ark as they're commanded to do, to watch for it. And when it moved, they moved. So we see here that while faith is to be exercised, obedience is always very close behind. So let's remember, brethren, we can say we believe all day the promises of God, but if there is not action behind that faith, then our faith is worthless. That's kind of what James says, doesn't he, in chapter 2? And So that's what we'll be seeing later on in our exposition of James. So, faith then in our walk doesn't move us to be lazy. It doesn't move us to inactivity. But it causes us really, in reality, to be obedient to the commands of God. And then another thing we can see here is the obedience that is shown forth by not only Joshua, but also the the priests and the people of God. Obedience. You think that's a foreign word nowadays that people just don't understand. You think plain English, like the word obedience, would be something that people could figure out and do. But in reality, it seems that we have a very hard time of it, don't we? How hard it is, brethren, to be obedient and to submit to lawful authority. It seems like we are constantly having to tell folks, listen, you need to be obedient. You need to obey those who do have the rule over you. You need to obey in this area. You need to be obedient in that area. But again, here we see something of the nasty effects of the fall left in us. This aversion to obey God-given authority. Think of that. How often, brethren, do we struggle to obey in all spheres of our lives the things that God has told us? And even to be under submission to those whom God has placed over us. Is that not true as far as the government is concerned? We have the government of the land and we're to obey. Uh, Schools, you go to school, if you're doing that, then you have to obey your teachers. That's just out of respect and out of what God tells us for authority over those over us. The home, wives are to be submissive to their husbands. They're to be quiet. Husbands are to rule their wives and their children. The children are to be submissive to their parents. There's even submission in the church. And now, you know, we hear all this, oh, we're all equal, we're all equal. Well... That may be so, but this equality does not rule out proper spheres of obedience. The people of God are to obey. They are to obey those rulers that have been placed over them. Hebrews 13, as far as church is concerned. Obey them that have the rule over you, for they watch for your soul. How about the workplace? Again, we have this equality men, uh, idea. Oh, he puts his pants on or she puts her pants on the same way I do, so why do I have to obey her? Well, because you're commanded to, that's why. And I agree, our uh, authority, headship thing is all out of whack here in America. But does that give us excuse as Christians not to be obedient in the spheres in which we are set at? Whether it be the home, whether it be school, whether it be the government, whether it be church, or whether it be workplace. Christians, we should be setting the example for others in this matter. Being obedient. How many were obedient just today under lawful authority? How many transgressed already in some faction dealing with 
lawful authority. Not doing what you're plainly told to do. Being exhorted to do. And you know to do. But you just refuse, or we refuse. hate to put the you there, because I'm also guilty of that. Well, let me assure you, salvation does not give us freedom from being under headship. We obey God in reality when we obey lawful authority. When we rebel against lawful authority, we're actually rebelling against God. So we need to be careful with that. You know, even Christ, give you an example here. The greatest example in the scripture would be Jesus and his submission. You know who he was submitted to? The Father. The head of every man is Christ and the head of Christ is God, the scripture says. So even Christ, as he is the God-man, is under submission and, and obedient. And he will be for all eternity now. It's true, he's co-equal as far as his essence is concerned with God the Father. All three uh, persons of the Trinity are equal. But as Christ has covenanted to be the mediator of his people from the time that he entered into that covenant, or you want to use that kind of language, he has been submissive to his Father. He's been obedient. And part of that price of redeeming us was the fact that that will be from then all the way on for all eternity. He will be the God-man. When we view Him in heaven, we will view Him as our mediator, the God-man. And even in eternity, Jesus is going to submit. He's going to turn it all over unto His Father that God may be all in all. That's an amazing thing, isn't it? Someone who is who He is. And yet He would do that. So the next time we're ready to gripe and murmur, about lawful authority, we ought to remember what Christ has done. And the last thing here, and again under this thought of how even uh, everything's going to be obedient, you know, even the elements of God's creation obey Him. Where do you see that at? Well, I see it right here from verses 14 through 17. The Bible here doesn't tell us how God parted the river. But we know he did. This is part of his work. He says, this day will I begin to magnify thee in the sight of all Israel. So this is God who parted this river. And so even the elements of God's creation, however he did it, whether he spoke it, it doesn't matter. The point is that the elements obeyed. The river stopped when God said stop. What do you do with the river's free will, huh? Well, maybe he wanted to flow. I mean, that's, that's how man thinks, doesn't he? Well, God put a stop to that, didn't he? He stopped. In fact, he even floods some land that belonged to someone else, supposedly, at this point. So here, even in this sense, we see an obedience, don't we? And this is one of the marvelous wonders we see in this, this great miracle we see in our text. And notice... Again, however far that was from verse 16, from the city of Adam, that is Zaratan, and those that came down toward the sea of the plain, even the salt city, it stopped, it failed, he said here. Can you imagine the, the power that was behind that water and being stopped? Remember, this is flood season. This isn't the normal trickle that would be coming down. This is the time of the year when it would be flooded. So there would be more water coming. 
And yet we see now not only uh, the elements obeying, but we see something in this, the power of God in me. And if he did just speak this into pass, wow. How we better fear this God then, hadn't we? Who can do such as this?